And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. might be running for her life from some gigantic turned-on ape. Are you goddamn shamanist pig ape? Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to Earth Destruction Directive. I am your illustrious host, Luke Jaganetti, and this is a very special episode of Earth Destruction Directive because we are currently hip-deep in King Kong Month here on the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. And if you thought King Kong Month was going to go down without Earth Destruction Directive getting a piece of that action, you've got another thing coming. And we have got a doozy of a King Kong movie for you today because we are going to be watching 1967's King Kong Escapes. This film is, it's going to redefine what a King Kong movie is going to mean. Uh, I hope everybody enjoyed our last episode. We talked about the IDW miniseries Godzilla Legends. Uh, That was a very good show. A little on the long side for what I normally like to do, but it was a five-issue mini, so I guess that's okay. But uh, I hope everyone is caught up because I am rip-roaring, ready to go, and a little bit of King Kong escapes, so we are going to take a quick break, and then we are going to be right back here for our installment in King Kong Month, here on Earth Destruction Directive. King Kong. Mammoth. Behemoth. Goliath. King Kong escapes and meets his greatest foe, the Kong of Steel. A gargantuan duel, unmatched by any battle in history. 
thundering 60-foot robot Kong of Steel. Creation of the evil Doctor Who, criminal genius who stops at nothing. Kong, once again, dig! for life against a copter squadron. A thousand thrills as King Kong battles the serpent of Mondo Island. No, this Kong! Hits himself against a nation's armament. And plunges a beautiful girl into a world of terror. King Kong in a duel to the death. Alright, welcome back to Earth Destruction Directive. I hope that trailer got everyone all excited to watch King Kong Escapes. Now, King Kong Escapes was released in Japan in 1967. It was released the following year, 1968, here in the United States. It is directed by Ishiro Honda, with special effects by Eji Tsuburaya. Our story opens on the UN Submarine Explorer, where we meet our heroes. Briefly, as it turns out, because we immediately jump to the Arctic headquarters of the international menace, Doctor Who. Yeah, Doctor Who. Who has built a 60-foot-tall robotic version of King Kong, dubbed Mechanicong, with which he plans to dig up the extremely rare and dangerous element, dubbed Element X. He does this on behalf of one Madame Piranha, who is an agent of... A government. We're not sure which one. Mechanicong starts his excavation, but in the presence of the brightly glowing Element X, his circuits fail and he turns into a giant ape-shaped paperweight, so it's back to the old drawing board for who. Back on the submarine, we meet our heroes proper. Commander Carl Nelson, his second-in-command Jiro Nomura, and the nurse Lieutenant Susan Watson. Thanks to an underwater rock slide, the ship has to stop for repairs, giving the trio a chance to explore nearby Mondo Island, the island where the legendary ape King Kong, whom Nelson had studied years before, is rumored to live. Our heroes land and decide the best thing to do is to immediately split up and leave the girl by herself. Susan is not alone more than 30 seconds before the toothy dinosaur Gorosaurus shows up to menace her. This rouses Kong, who comes running from a nearby cave to her rescue. The two monsters slug it out, with Gorosaurus getting the early advantage with his kangaroo kick, but Kong eventually uses a judo throw on him and takes him down. The humans try to make a break for it, which distracts Kong long enough for Gorosaurus to clamp onto Kong's leg with his powerful jaws. This results in Kong snapping Gorosaurus's jaw, naturally, and chasing the humans back to the ship. 
His chase is interrupted when the human's launch hovercraft is menaced by a giant sea serpent, which Kong quickly dispatches by tossing a boulder at its head and then wrestling with it. The big ape then starts shaking the ship, wanting to see Susan. At one point he actually knocks on the hull. She comes up top and talks Kong down long enough for the crew to make their repairs and set off, leaving Kong at the island. Learning where King Kong is, who decides that he will capture him and use him to dig up the Element X? Who sends in a squadron of helicopters to Mondo Island to gas Kong, and then airlifts him to his giant ship? Kong is taken to the Arctic base, where he is hypnotized and forced to mine the Element X. Doctor Who orders Kong to... Kong does as instructed, but soon breaks free of the hypnosis and runs amok, trapped in a cell by Who. Nelson and the crew return to Mondo Island to study Kong, but find only the signs of a struggle. They are shortly thereafter kidnapped by Who's agents and taken to the Arctic, as Who hopes to use Susan to control Kong. Needless to say, things go badly for Who once the heroes are there, and Kong makes his titular escape, swimming all the way to Tokyo Bay. Who brings Mechanicong in tow as he sails in pursuit? Our heroes manage to escape thanks to Madame Piranha, who has had a change of heart, and they land in Tokyo before Who does. Under Susan's urging, Kong avoids a confrontation with the military, but cannot avoid a fight with Mechanicong. The Kong of Steel tries to hypnotize Kong again, but Nomura shoots the hypno-light off its forehead. Then the robot turns to brute strength, landing a doozy of a haymaker on Kong's jaw, then grabbing Susan and climbing up Tokyo Tower. Kong gives chase, and the Battle of the Kongs is on. And I'm going to stop right there, because you know me, I don't like to spoil the endings. Now, when you watch King Kong Escapes, several questions come to mind almost immediately. For instance, why does a giant robot ape seem like the best way to mine Element X instead of a drilling machine, perhaps? And if we're going to build a giant robot ape, why not just sell Mechanicong to, Mad to Madame Piranha's government instead of the Element X? I mean, it's a big super weapon, right? Why does a robot ape have a belt with grenades on it? Why is a nurse, a nurse, mind you, not a doctor, not only a lieutenant, but the only medical personnel on the submarine? Why is there a woman on a submarine in the first place? The answer to these questions is that none of that matters, because this movie is absolutely bananas. This is an insane, riotously fun uh, adventure movie, and we don't need to worry about things like logic and sense when we're moving from one set piece to the next. Now, in 1967, the other uh, Daikaiju movie that Toho released was Son of Godzilla, and it's very clear that King Kong escapes or, as it was originally known in Japan, King Kong's Counter-Attack. Which, I, while I like that name, uh, he doesn't do much of a counter-attack in this movie. The escapes actually makes more sense, so it's a rare instance where the U.S. title is more appropriate. Also, I, it avoids that possessive apostrophe S in the title, which I'm never a big fan of. Anyway, um, it's very clear that King Kong Escapes got the budget and the attention over Son of Godzilla. I mean, for one thing, this is directed by Ishiro Honda, and Son of Godzilla was directed by Jun Fukuda, who was kind of the, the B director at Toho at the time. Uh, Tsuburaya did effects on both, but he actually kind of had an assistant on Son of Godzilla and did all the effects. He headed up all the effects here on King Kong Escapes. Um, so this is, you know, clearly this was a movie that Toho wanted to sell to the West, uh, you know, starring some American actors and an American icon in King Kong. So 
uh, it clearly was there. That was their big movie of, of 67. You know, a lot of King Kong films are criticized, fairly or otherwise, for the fact that it takes a while kind of to get the fantastical elements of the story uh, in the film. Not so much here, as at four and a half minutes into the film, Mechanicong is on screen. And it's, it's, it's a thing of beauty, Mechanicong. It's absolutely amazing that Subaraya has never been able to make an ape suit that looked realistic, but give him a robot ape and he looks fantastic. Also interesting is that Mechanicong predates Mechagodzilla by a good seven years. So while most people remember and know Mechagodzilla, a lot of people forget about Mechanicong. He's kind of the predecessor to all these robot kaiju monsters that are very popular now. Interesting thing about Mechanicong is that his size is consistent between both cuts of the movie. In the Japanese cut, he's 20 meters. In the U.S., he's described as 60 feet. Now, that's roughly equivalent, a meter being roughly equivalent to a yard. Now, this is a smaller scale than we normally got from Toho. Most of their monsters were about twice this size, in fact, even bigger than that, um, as we started getting into the middle, about this time in the Showa period. Now, the smaller scale means that the miniatures have to be somewhat more detailed because they're not as uh, they're not as small relative to the monsters that they're being shot near. Now this means that we do get some really highly detailed miniatures. A lot of the vehicles and um, you know the other things that the monsters interact with look really nice because they're obviously more detailed than what we would get over in the Godzilla series. We also this also allows for more interaction with humans. Um, when they're when who is preparing Kong to be hypnotized at his Arctic base there's a little gantry with a couple of, uh, of whose henchmen, you know, working to, uh, they install the uh, microphone on one ear and a camera on the other. And they're interacting with Kong, and, it, and you know, they're much bigger than you normally would see humans interact with, say, Godzilla. Uh, similarly, every time Kong holds Susan in his hand, or when they airlift Kong, you know, we do get some, some human interaction. Which is, which is neat, because you don't always get that in the Daikaiju movies, because the humans are so small relative to the monsters. But in, in this film, and in fact in most Kong films, you know, his, his size is not as large, so it works better. Another interesting thing related to the scale, this is one of the very few Toho uh, Daikaiju movies where we see the monsters on a set. And now I don't mean a set like, you know, they're in a cityscape smashing it or in the country. Here, Kong is actually inside a set. It's a full-scale cage that we see him in at one point, and then in the cavern digging. We also see Mechanicong in a similar situation, although he's not quite as enclosed as Kong is. It's really impressive when you think about that, you know, at this scale, they could make this, the, uh, this, the set a full a enclosed set like that where it would have the level of detail that it could work at both the human-sized shots and then the monster-sized shots. It's really impressive. This was something that I had kind of forgotten about since it's been a few years since I watched it. So I, that really impressed me. The thing about this movie is that this was on a lot on like TBS growing up. It was one of those, it was about a half dozen or so uh, uh, Toho and Japanese movies that TBS would show. This was one of them, and I don't know, it, it was weird, because, you know, growing up, my dad is a huge King Kong fan. I mean, huge, huge King Kong fan. And so I was watching the original Cooper King Kong since I was a little kid, so it made it kind of difficult to watch this. It's almost like this film had a stigma about it that, you know, I just didn't watch it a lot. I know I had it on tape, but I can't remember actually sitting down ever and watching it. 
until I got older, and now I love it. Now this movie is just, you know, it's it's insane. I love it so much. So it's strange the way that works sometimes when you're growing up versus what you enjoy when you're older. And if I think that if this was one that had I watched it as a kid more, it would have been right up there with Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster as one of my absolute all-time favorites. One of the other monsters were introduced here who would go on to bigger fame is Gorosaurus. Now, Gorosaurus is basically a stand-in for the Tyrannosaurus from uh, the traditional King Kong story. But the fight between him and Kong actually not only has allusions to that fight, but also to uh, King Kong's battle with Godzilla back in 1963. Uh, Gorosaurus' big kangaroo kick is actually a reference to uh, Godzilla does a similar jump kick, believe it or not, in the fight in King Kong vs. Godzilla. Uh, now, Gorosaurus is, he's again, a really detailed, well-designed monster. He's very basic-looking for a Toho monster, just kind of like a Tyrannosaurus with uh, a small row of spines down his back, you know, big feet, sharp claws, sharp teeth. You know, nothing really all that, out, all that outlandish. He fits in really nicely with monsters like Anguirus, Varan, you know, other earlier monsters. Angorosaurus would go on to reappear the next year in Destroy All Monsters. Now, this, of course, Gorosaurus was kind of a last-minute replacement for Baragon, because the Baragon suit, thanks to being used and reused and reused on Ultraman, was kind of in really sorry shape. So Gorosaurus got all of Baragon's parts, but he still makes a real impression in the film. And he makes a good impression in this film. He's only on screen for about maybe five minutes or so, maybe seven all told. But his fight with Kong is really neat, because he really kind of kicks Kong's butt for a while at the beginning there. Till Kong, I uh, said, he grabs him by the neck and rolls and throws him down. And then it's a great bit where Kong just kind of stands over him, just hammers, blows down. Wham, 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 wham. Just keeps hitting him. And it looks like he's basically beaten uh, Gorosaurus to death when Kong is looking after Susan leaving, and then Gorosaurus just got chomp right on Kong's ankle. So I, I really liked their fight, and I like seeing Gorosaurus. Interesting here also, when Kong breaks Gorosaurus's jaw, there's a bunch of foam foaming out of his mouth. Now, a year later, when all the monsters would get together and fight King Ghidorah and destroy all monsters, when they break King Ghidorah's jaw, there's blood. So I'm not sure what the difference was. Part of me thinks it's because, again, they wanted to sell this as a matinee movie to the West, so keep it clean for the kiddies kind of thing, you know? Now, the monster that shows up immediately after Gorosaurus is the Serpent of Mondo Island, and, yeah, there's a reason why this guy doesn't appear ever again. Um, Folks will tell you that the giant snake that Kong fights in King Kong 1976 was a big, fake-looking rubber snake. Uh, this big fake-looking rubber snake is a, a million times faker and rubberier. So I'm just going to leave it at that. There is a great bit in there where uh, Kong throws a boulder from shore and hits the serpent right in the head. And I can just imagine being on set filming that, like kind of setting up the puppet in the effects tank and, you know, whether it was a stagehand or Subaraya himself or whomever, just hawking these boulders, trying to make sure they hit that right mark and don't hit the hovercraft model, and I'm sure that was a lot of fun. So, uh, I guess at this point I should talk about the King Kong suit. I've talked about every other suit. Kind of trying to avoid talking about the Kong suit. Now, I was said, Subaraya, for whatever reason, never really made, to my eyes, a convincing ape monster suit, and that kind of continues here. Now, 
I like this suit better than the one in King Kong vs. Godzilla because I think the, the smaller scale helps it. Uh, I think it, it, overall the proportions are more ape-like with the kind of shorter legs and longer arms as opposed to the just long legs and long arms like the King Kong vs. Godzilla suit had. Uh, I think the head is better. It's not great, but it is a little more expressive and a little more ape-like. Uh, the King Kong vs. Godzilla suit had... Uh, you could see the actor's eyes through the suit. It was an effort to humanize King Kong, and that's abandoned here. He just has normal monster suit eyes, and I think that actually helps. I'm not I'm not sure if it's because of the slightly glazed over look he has, but it, you know, I, I like it. It's, again, not a great suit, not going to not gonna go down in the annals as one of uh, Tsuburaya's best designs, but certainly works for this movie, and certainly memorable in this movie. It has a lot of character. Again, being on this scale, he has to interact with the humans, and the puppet head actually has quite a good range of motion of what it can do with its eyes and his brow and his mouth. Uh, a couple of scenes where he's quote-unquote talking to Susan, or, or a lot of good little character um, puppetry going on in the head. The Kong water suit's kind of an odd animal, because it's clearly a different suit with a different head. It's got this uh, kind of big, loose, floppy head on the, on top, when it, it's real obvious that it's a seam. It only shows up in a couple of scenes. I think it's any time when the suit was getting really, really wet. Because, like, when Kong is standing next to the submarine, it's it looks like the regular hero suit. When he's chasing down after the serpent, wrestling with the serpent, it's the water suit, and it just doesn't look all that great. But again, it's only a few a few scenes here and there, and really, the suit does its job well. The, uh, uh, you know, again, you take the good with the bad when you do suitmation, and ape suits just tend to look a little sillier than their reptilian or mechanical counterparts. So, I uh, do want to mention, after the use of balloons to airlift Kong in King Kong vs. Godzilla, using helicopters makes more sense. So I'm okay with that. And actually, one of the interesting things about this, getting back to talking about scale. Now, if y'all remember, way back in Episode 3, I talked about the return of Godzilla, and I said that one of the things that doesn't work in Sudmation generally are helicopters. Because at the scale that most Daikaiju films are done at, helicopters either look too slow or too fast. And I don't know why that is, it's just that's the way my eye perceives it. Well, this is one of the few uh, Daikaiju uh, tokusatsu films, live-action films, that is, where the helicopters look good. At this scale, the helicopters can work. Now, I don't know if it's because there are these futuristic uh, four-propellered... Actually, it's neat. they got two propellers in front and two propellers in back, and they spin... Uh, alternate from each other. So the top one spins clockwise and the one underneath it will spin counterclockwise. Not sure how that provides any lift at all, but I'm not an aeronautical engineer. And they are jet helicopters. They do have little afterburners on the back. So maybe that's part of it. Maybe it's because because they're futuristic helicopters. Their design's a little crazier. But they're a little bit bigger, too, than we'd normally see at a uh, helicopter in a, a Daikaiju film, so they really look good. I mean, and, and the futuristic designs carry through through all the vehicles. The helicopters are my favorite ones. Like I said, who, whose fleet of helicopters really looks nifty, and their attack on Kong, where they gas bomb him, uh, another nod back to 1933, and then they clamp him with these giant clamps on his uh, wrists and ankles and airlift him to the boat. It sounds silly, and really it is kind of silly, but it's actually decently portrayed with the effects. It's it's It looks to me, no less ridiculous than when they airlifted him by balloon, and in fact, this seems to work a little bit better. The uh, 
these, yeah, some other of the futuristic vehicles, the hovercraft that is the launch from the Explorer. Now, the Explorer itself looks like kind of a redesign of the sea view from Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. And, um, you know, Richard Basehart is not here, so it's not really the sea view, but close enough. We only see it for a few shots. Uh, we actually see more of the hovercraft that's their launch. And it's a neat enough looking hovercraft. I mean, it looks kind of like this, ironically enough, like the spin drift from Land of the Giants. But one of the neat effects on it is when they're flying over the water, there must be a fan built into the bottom of the model because there's water displacement when they fly over the water, much like there would be with the real hovercraft. So I thought that was pretty neat. Um, you know, and, and we see it for the one scene. Now, it does also show kind of the problem when you take a futuristic vehicle design and apply it to real life. The doors are, they open at this ridiculous angle. So when you see the crew getting out, basically they open the door and the doors are, are immediately pulled by gravity to fall right back on them. It's not like a gull wing door where it opens straight up. It opens at like a 45 degree angle. It makes absolutely no sense. Like, why would you build it like this? And the answer is because we built the model that way and now we need to build the full size the same way. Uh, another futuristic vehicle we get, and we see only a few shots of this, is whose ship is actually kind of a like a, it almost reminds me a little bit of the Laparis from The Spy Who Loved Me, except instead of splitting in the front, it just has two, two prows in the front. I thought that was pretty neat. We only see a little bit of it. Basically, it's there to be a big holding cell to take Kong to the Arctic and then to bring Mechanicong back down. Uh, to Tokyo, and then it does in fact get destroyed real good in the finale, which was uh, pretty neat. Now, during the scene where Doctor Who orders Kong to... Dick Kong! Dick! That's for Chris Honeywell. We get kind of a Kong POV shot. Now, at first, when I was looking at this, it's, it's Doctor Who and Madame Piranha watching Kong dig on their monitors in the control room. And I thought, oh, okay, well, it's that same problem. Why do they have cameras there? Then you realize it's the shot from a camera that they installed on Kong's ear. So Kong, it looks, and he has a microphone on the other ear, so Doctor Who can yell at him. So it's like Kong's wearing a Bluetooth headset and a webcam. <laughs> so when we get the Kong, the Kong cam shot of him tearing through the cavern and digging up the uh, Element X, and the Element X is some interesting stuff because it looks like just bright white um, translucent blocks. That's what this element is uh, realized as. Now the lighting on these is crazy because most of the time Subaraya didn't put really, really harsh light on his effects because, you know, lighting helps sell them as real and not just as guys in suits. But here, the two times we see the Element X, the lighting is so bright as to be just saturated with white light. Now, when the Mechanicong digs it up, it's so bright that we just get a shot of all this straight light right at his face. It's just a really cool shot before he collapses. In Kong, we get a similar one, and it's actually the brightness of the Element X that starts rousing him from his uh, hypnosis, which is funny because his first instinct is to go to sleep, and who just keeps yelling at him and says, Wake up! You shall not sleep! <laughs> Doctor Who is a great character. I mean, it... The uh, Nelson at one point refers to him as the International Judas. And it's like, why Why is there this refugee from a, a Japanese James Bond ripoff in this King Kong movie? And it's because, because it's awesome. That's the only answer you can give. And amazingly, in the American version, he is dubbed by Paul Freese. You know, if you ever ride the Haunted Mansion at Walt Disney World, you'll know the voice of Paul Freese. And it's coming out of, uh, out of Doctor Who in the American version of King Kong Escapes. It's absolutely fantastic. Doctor Who's partner is Madame Piranha. Now, I put that in air quotes because she is not named in either version. 
Okay. Now, in the U.S. version, Doctor Who repeatedly refers to her as Madam. He calls, you know, anytime he talks to her, he calls her Madam. And in the Japanese version, I think he calls her Madam once or twice as well. Now, the name Madam Piranha comes from some promotional materials, and then on the soundtrack, she's referred to that way. But again, the name is never mentioned. Was this intentional? I don't know, and I've never seen any information one way or the other whether it was intentional or not. Now, you know, some of the characters' names aren't referred to a whole lot. I mean, we hear Doctor Who's name very early, but um, it takes us uh, close to 20 minutes before we get Susan Watson's full name. It takes us more than half an hour before we get Nomura's name at all, let alone his first name of Jiro, which is close to a 45-minute mark. So... It seems like the story was fairly simple to begin with, so maybe she didn't have a name, or maybe she she had a name in the script and just never came up. And she's an interesting character because she starts out as the... It's clearly clear she's a communist. At one point, she's wearing a all-beige outfit with a beige pageboy hat. It's like, ah, it's the communist girl uniform available at your local commu girl outfitters, which I'm sure those didn't sell well. I mean, how could they? But anyway... Um, I'm getting off topic here. She's clearly a communist character. She serves her communist government, and she wants the element X in order to create, basically so they can take over the world. Remember, this was 1967, and Japan was uh, kind of in, you know, in a lot of ways dealt with communism much the same as we had to do here in the States. It was much more local to them. You know, they had Korea, Vietnam, China right there, whereas we had to deal with Cuba, and, and then Soviet Union was kind of a... Uh, you know, they they were a distant threat, even though they were a threat. Uh, and clearly, she has the change of heart and helps out our heroes. And uh, but she's she's kind of a, an odd odd duck of a character because you know basically she continually threatens to not fund Doctor Who anymore, and that he kind of keeps convincing her. And she's the one that finds out where Kong is located and gives him the idea to use to use Susan to control Kong, and then who just kind of blows it off and uses hypnosis anyway. So it's, it's, you wonder, if did she have a change of heart because she didn't like the idea of her nation being known for genocide, or was she just getting really pissed off at Doctor Who? So, interesting, um, like I said, we never find out what government she works for. I mean, she's clearly Asian, you know, and uh, she's clearly a communist, so that gives us certain... Uh, certain possibilities. Now, at one point, Nelson uh, and Piranha are sharing a drink. She's trying to seduce him. And he says, you're not Chinese. And he goes, uh, Korean, Thai, Burma. Uh, I think he says uh, Vietnamese in there also. And in the Japanese version, Dr. Who bursts in and says, none of those nationalities. In the U.S. version, he bursts in and says, you're getting warmer. So... It's like okay, what other communist nations were left in that era? I mean, I'm not I'm not sure what other Asian communist I mean, was was Laos communist at that point. I I don't know. My friend Adam has a um, first off he he's a he's a big leftist, he's a big lib, so he likes communism. <laughs> he also minored in uh, in Russian and has a history degree, so he knows his communism. So I'll talk to Adam and figure out where Madame Barana was supposed to be for. Referring to the U.S. version, the U.S. version is about seven minutes shorter. Um, let me double-check that real quick. The uh, yeah, the Japanese version was 104 minutes, and the U.S. version was 96 minutes. Now, this was not a case of, of the U.S. distributor cutting out stuff willy-nilly. Uh, there were extra there were a few extra bits shot for the American audience that were not included in the Japanese one. Early on, right at the beginning, when we were introduced to... Uh, 
Susan. She's walking on the ship, and she has a short interaction with some of the crewmen, who basically say that, oh, it, uh, you know, with such a pretty nurse on board, I'm going to get myself sick on purpose. To which she replies that she's got plenty of castor oil for them if they want to come down to sick bay. Which it's it's good natured. It's it's the 60s, so you know, casual sexism was accepted with a laugh and a smile. Uh, and that's not in the Japanese version. The the major difference is in the on Tokyo Tower. Um, at, in, in the finale on Tokyo Tower. Now, Mechanic Kong carries Susan up, and then eventually Kong ends up with her, and Kong puts her down. Now, as they're fighting, they're shaking the tower back and forth, and uh, Nomura has to go up and rescue her. Now, in the Japanese version, there's an extended sequence where she falls off the edge and is hanging on, and Nomura go, you know, goes down there with the help of the uh, the Japanese self-defense force, and they uh, rig a, a basically a rope harness and pull her back up. This whole basically it's a couple of minute sequence of them of them pulling her up. That is cut almost entirely. Uh, we do get a scene the scene where she starts to fall, but it looks it's cut as if Nomura just kind of grabs her and pulls her back up without the uh, help of the uh, of the JSDF. And except for the fact that all these little cuts cause jumps in the soundtrack I like the American version better it actually works a little bit tighter because the whole thing with them rescuing Susan hanging off the side is kind of drawn out and it kind of drags the finale down a little bit where here it's much more about Kong and Mechanicong and yeah we get Susan and Nomura but the, 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 you know, the, the vertical fight between the two Kongs is really the highlight and I think it actually works a little bit better if they could have smoothed out some of the soundtrack cuts I would, uh, I would think it'd probably be, I, I would, yeah, how do I want to say this? If they had smoothed out the soundtrack cuts, it'd be almost perfect. I like this the American finale better than the Japanese one. The, it's actually dubbed each way because it was shot with both American and Japanese actors. So it was filmed originally in English and Japanese. So depending on which one you watch, different characters will be dubbed. So that's kind of, you just kind of going to go with it on that front. Uh, we did want to speak about the music real quick, which by, was by Akira Ifukube. Uh, I like it. It's it's a good soundtrack. There's some really nice original themes. The opening theme has a really nice kind of South Seas uh, flavor to it. What's interesting is that Ifukube doesn't recycle any of his material from King Kong vs. Godzilla, but kind of apes, pun intended, his theme for King Ghidorah when creating King Kong's theme. King Ghidorah and King Kong's themes are almost identical. There's a little bit of a difference at the the end of the Liet motif for Kong's theme, which starts to grow on you after a while. But it, I just thought it was funny that two extremely powerful, extremely popular monsters whose name starts with King both have sort of the same theme. I guess Ifukube uh, thought that uh, that mo- layout motif worked well for royal, quote-unquote, monsters. Mechanicong's theme is used uh, a few times through, and it's a very nice kind of repetitive mechanical theme. It would later get recycled um, for the Hesai-era Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla from 1993, and it would get kind of um, pumped up a little bit and become that Mechagodzilla's theme, which is appropriate. Uh, it's a good soundtrack. I have... Someone on YouTube has posted the majority of it. I don't know that it's available in this country. I've never seen it for sale, but it's something you might find on an import. And if you can find it, if you like um, soundtracks, especially if like Ifukube, I'd, I'd recommend tracking it down. It's a good Ifukube score. Any final notes? I think that's about it. That's all I've got here. Now, like I said, this is a extremely fun movie. It is like a King Kong comic book 
brought to life. And which makes sense, considering that this was produced in association with Rankin-Bass, who were producing the King Kong cartoon show at the time. So it plays kind of like a, you know, 96-minute Saturday morning cartoon. We go from one to the next to the next. There's always something crazy right around the corner. You know, sometimes, uh, especially here in the in the the mid to late '60s, you'd get the Daikaiju movies would would really focus on the human elements. Monster Zero is the perfect example of this, because there's some monster stuff up front, and there's monster stuff at the end, but the middle is all human drama, and it's good. It's it's I like the human drama in it, but as a kid. You don't want to see that. As a kid, you want to see monsters. So this film promised, you know, the war between King Kong and the Kong of Steel, and they delivered. You know, everything on that trailer that I played is there. You know, Kong fights a squadron of helicopters. Kong, you know, battles a nation's military. Kong climbs Tokyo Tower. Kong cl- battles Gorosaurus and the Serpent of Mondo Island. And and it's a whole lot of fun. And there's, and it's all the, the effects are... are they're good for Toho for this period. Again, you got to get past the what the silly Kong suit looks like. But if you're willing to to buy into the effects, and if you're listening to Earth Destruction Directive, I think you are of the mindset that you can buy into the suitmation effects and just take them, you know, take them for what they are. You know, that was how they did them, you know, and just just watch the story and have fun. Um, I heartily recommend watching King Kong Escapes if you haven't seen it. If you have seen it, you know, watch it again. Uh, now, King Kong Escapes was released on uh, DVD back in 2005 here in the United States. It was originally offered, I think, as a only as a two-pack with King Kong vs. Godzilla, although now you can get it as a single-pack by itself. It has the uh, only the American cut of the movie, no extras to speak of whatsoever, but what it does have is a immaculately clean copy of the uh, of the film. I don't know that the film looked this good when it was released in the US in 1968. It looks fabulous. I mean, it's so bright and colorful and we go from the um you know the the jungle of Mondo Island to the Arctic base of Doctor Who to uh Tokyo and 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 the sequence in Tokyo was filmed at night. And for a long time on video, you couldn't really get the details of the fight between Kong and Mechanic Kong because it was so dark. Well, now, yeah, it's still at night, but it's bright enough. You can see what's going on. And it's like, that alone is worth the cost of admission. It is available for rent on Netflix. I think it was available for streaming at one time, but it's not anymore. So that's a little disappointing. Um... But you can you can find this cheap, I'm sure, on eBay or Amazon. In fact, if you go to the Two True Freaks website at twotruefreaks.libsyn.com, click on the Amazon.com link, and then go buy King Kong Escapes. Uh, you'll be helping out the Two True Freaks with a little uh, little monetary kickback from there as well, in addition to helping yourself to a heaping helping of King Kong Escapes. Now, uh, closing thoughts, like I said, if you haven't seen this movie, give it a spin. I think even the most jaded King Kong fan will enjoy watching this movie. Um, I'm not going to lie, this is my, probably either my second or third favorite King Kong movie. <laughs> the original is always tops, and it kind of wrestles with um, the Jackson Kong <laughs> for which one I like better. Now, uh, Scott Gardner and I had a discussion about why I don't like the 1976 Kong. To me, this is a more reasonable uh, Kong movie than the 1976 Kong because it's it's not trying to be anything. It's not on its surface. It is pure entertainment. This is a film that kids will love, that uh, kids who are now grown-ups 
will love or are still kids at heart like I am will just love this movie. It's it just plays so quick and so fun and so fast. I I think everyone will really enjoy it. So, uh, and also you get to make all the Doctor Who jokes. You know, true story. For a long time growing up, I I'd, I'd never seen Doctor Who, the the British Doctor Who. Um, but I knew that the bad guy in this was named Doctor Who, so for a long time I thought the British Doctor Who show was about an Asian supervillain, kind of like a Fu Manchu type character, and that just Doctor Who was a must be an old standard, you know, Asian menace type character. I'm not proud to admit that. I've got some friends who are extremely big Doctor Who fans. Hi, Shag. But, uh, you know... We all make mistakes sometimes when we're younger. Now, I would like to see a Doctor Who versus Doctor Who story. I'm not sure what Doctor Who would do against a Kong of Steel. Mechanicong versus K9, there's no no contest here. Now, before I get off on any more weird tangents, let me, uh, I'm going to rein it in here. I'm just going to say, uh, again, uh, King Kong Escapes, a worthy addition to the King Kong mythos. It, it's a different take. It's not trying to replace Miriam C. Cooper. It's just trying to be a fun adventure. And if you like, you know, your, your adventures to be just colorful and brash and bold with lots of monsters fighting, then this is a movie you definitely need to check out. I think you'll enjoy it quite a bit. All right. We are going to take a quick break, and then we will be right back here on the Earth Destruction Directive. Kong! Kong! King Kong! Don't call. Yeah, let him go. But he's going. He's going home. I think he's had enough of what we call civilization. All right, we're back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Now, normally, this is where I would read listener feedback, which, from what I understand on other shows, is usually the most popular segment. Now, unfortunately, I have received no feedback from the last episode. In fact, it's been a little while since I've gotten any emails for the show, so I'm not sure if that just means no one's listening or if they're so disgusted by what they hear they can't be bothered to send in an email or uh, what exactly that entails, but, um, you know, any podcaster will tell you that podcasting is a labor of love, and in fact, if you get a podcaster who says that his or her podcast is not a labor of love, I would call them a liar uh, to their face. So, you know, we don't do this for financial gain, uh, clearly. Um, yeah, no. <laughs> but anyway, um, you know, but... At the end of the day, getting feedback from listeners, getting a, hey, you know, I really liked the last show, um, you know, this is what I think about Godzilla Legends, this is what I think about King Kong Escapes, that kind of thing. Maybe, you know, a story, hey, I used to watch King Kong Escapes on TBS back in the day, like you did. Something like that, you know. It it does a lot for a podcaster's uh, ego, <laughs> for one thing, and it also does a lot to help them uh, desire to keep doing this. You know, not all of us... Um, how do I put this? We like getting feedback because it tells us that someone out there is enjoying what we're putting all this time and effort into. Uh, you know, I enjoy doing this show for me, but I'd like to know that my time and effort is uh, making somebody else happy and bringing somebody else some enjoyment when it comes to learning and talking about, uh, you know, Japanese giant monsters. So 
that's just me. I'll get off my soapbox right now. I know you guys don't want to hear this, but hey, if you have some feedback, please, please, please send it in. There are several ways you can get in touch with me. They will all be in the closing of the show if you'd like to get in touch with Earth Destruction Directive, and I would encourage you to do so. Now, on the next episode, what are we going to discuss? Well, it's been a little while since we have talked about a Showa film. We've done a... Uh, Hesai film relatively recently, and this was a Showa film, but not a film in the Godzilla series, and we've done comics and video games, so I think we're going to get back to the bread and butter and do another Showa Godzilla series film. Now, I was looking at it, and my Hesai films have been going in order, because I did The Return of Godzilla, and then Godzilla vs. Biolante. Now, my Millennium films, I've only done one, and that was Godzilla X Megajirus, and that was the second film in that series. My Showa films, I've jumped around a little bit. We started out with Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster, we've done Godzilla vs. the Cosmic Monster, and I got to thinking, it's like, why am I jumping around so much? Let's, let's keep these in order, even though I'm jumping around topics, so I'm not going, you know, straight down the line in the order they were made, uh, because I switch topics every month, but at least keep the films in some sort of order so I don't have to make references to films that I haven't talked about yet. So the next Millennium film will be Godzilla 2000, so we can, will have done 2000 and then Megajirus, and we can continue on that trend. The Hesai films obviously are already in order, so the next one for that will be um, Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah. But the Showa films, we gotta go back. Now, you'd say, Luke, okay, you're gonna start with Godzilla King of the Monsters, right? Or Gojira, right? Eh, again, not going to happen. And the reason for that is I want the my episode for uh, Gojira and Godzilla King of the Monsters to be kind of a, a big, maybe even an anniversary episode. Maybe get some guests on or something like that. And I don't want to just do that one solo and then do it again as a guest show. I'm not sure if that makes sense. So what I've decided to do is I'm going to do them in order, but... I am going to start with the second film and go forward, and then we'll come back to Gojira at a later date. So, the next uh, film we'll be watching on Earth Destruction Directive will be Godzilla Raids Again, the only, only the second film in the Godzilla series to be in black and white, and the first appearance of everybody's favorite little quadruped, Anguirus. So, uh, I think that one's on Netflix. I know for a fact you can get it on DVD from Sony Classics Media in a very handsome uh, uh, DVD. I, I tell you what, it's always been amazing to me um, the clarity afforded to the black and white films on DVD. You know, you get a film, that, uh, uh, you know, a color film that you've been watching on video for years and years, you watch it on DVD, you're blown away by how clear it is. Well, with a black and white film, it seems like it's uh, ten times more clarity that you'd get then from an old VHS of a black and white film. I am consistently impressed when I get DVDs of older films uh, that are in black and white and how crisp they look. I guess because you're not doing a color remaster, you're just doing a two-tone remaster that you can get some real good crispness and, and contrast. Now, I'm not really up on the technical side of it. I'd I don't know art, but I know what I like, you know, to recycle the cliches. So, everybody, come on back next time. We're going to be watching Godzilla Raids again. Until then, keep them stomping. This has been Earth Destruction Directed, a Daikaiju podcast, hosted and created by me, with Jack and Eddie. 
and presented by the Two True Freaks Podcast Network, available at twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. All characters, stories, images, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This is a fan work designed to honor the rich history of Japanese giant monster movies and culture. The opinions expressed on Earth Destruction Directive are my own, and I receive no money for this work. You can send feedback to our email address, earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. All feedback is welcome, and if you send it an email, I will respond to you on the show. Alternately, you can leave a comment at the home of Earth Destruction Directive on the Internet, earthdestructiondirective.blogspot.com. You can also check out the Two True Freaks Forum at www.forum4geeks.com. And you can find me on Twitter with the handle LJACONE. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. And be sure to head to twotruefreaks.libson.com to check out all the other fine quality Two True Freaks podcasts available. Thanks for listening, and come back next time for more Earth Destruction Directive. Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible.